So we are continuing um, our Seek First series, and last week, uh, as we kind of followed the outline of the book, uh, oh no, it's not Seek First, is it? It's uh, Kingdom Come. The book is titled Seek First by Jeremy Treat, and so our uh, sermons, our messages will kind of line up with the book chapters. Uh, Week one was chapters one and two kind of mashed together. Uh, today is uh, chapter three, so week two. Um, if you're trying to catch up, you can obviously read ahead, go back, whatever you need to do. Um, that's a book that when I read it, I thought this is what our, uh, I want our church to read, whether we do a sermon series on it or not. Uh, maybe reread it, and just as we um, want to seek the kingdom, um, it really does a great job of articulating how that looks and, and how that plays out um, as we pursue uh, King Jesus. Uh, And so last week we talked about how Jesus emphasized the kingdom, how we should seek the kingdom, and how the whole Bible tells the story of the kingdom. Um, That really, from the beginning, um, it was the kingdom of God was the intent, was the intended um, plan, the intended design, the way things ought to be. Um, And it was Adam in a garden, um, and he was supposed to rule over it according to God's ways. He failed, and then we see that pattern repeated throughout history of Uh, people failing and and not holding up what they are supposed to do. Um, The definition we gave of kingdom from Jeremy Treat is the kingdom uh, is God's reign through God's people over God's place. Uh, So if you look at Adam in the garden, he's God's people in God's place, um, ruling and reigning according to uh, the the ways of the Lord, right? He's stewarding, he's managing. Um, That um, mandate was repeated. It was echoed to uh, to Noah, and then uh, kind of enacted again in, in kind of a reset. Um, David was to rule, right? And, and so um, it was constant failure by humanity and constant faithfulness by God, uh, which led us all the way up to Jesus. And he's the perfect fulfillment of all these things, and he does not fail. Um, and so what we're moving towards in eternity uh, is the kingdom fully realized? Uh, right now, we have kind of an already but not yet kingdom, um, where we can experience it, uh, we can we can see it manifest among us, but not in totality. The world is still broken and stained by sin until Jesus returns and makes all things new. And so, when He makes all things new, we have a new heaven and a new earth. That will be the fully realized kingdom for all eternity. Uh, that'll be God's reign through God's people in God's place. And so the city kind of meets the garden, um, and it's going to be amazing. Right now, we live in the not yet. Uh, or we look forward to the not yet as we kind of live out the, the already part of the kingdom. Um, and so as we look forward to the kingdom, uh, we know that there must be a king of the kingdom. What's a kingdom without a king, right? And so today we'll zoom in on this king who is Jesus. Uh, He's not just a king that we've surrendered to or we're supposed to uh, submit our lives to. He's an unmatchable king. Uh, That's the chapter title, an unmatchable king that we have in Jesus. He's a king without equal. There's no peer. There's no one who's uh, no rival to this throne uh, who can compete with him, Um, which leads us right to this first point that Jesus is the king of kings. Uh, Mentioned this in our call to worship. You may have heard this um, phrase before. Uh, it was in the SM Lockridge, That's My King video, which is, again, kind of a, a mashup edit of a much longer sermon that he delivered, um, <clears throat> talking about just all the different things about our king. And so um, 
He, he is uh, unrivaled, right? The king of kings. Paul refers to Jesus as the king of kings in 1 Timothy 6. Uh, this name is seemingly uh, tattooed on Jesus' thigh that we read about in Revelation 19, our call to worship. Uh, the vision that John has and says that uh, there's a name uh, on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, Revelation 1.5 refers to Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. So not necessarily the term king of kings, but the one who is over all the other kings. And so that's uh, about the same thing, I would say. Um, but before we kind of dive into the king of kings, let's back up a little bit as the book does. Dispel some of the false notions of who many believe Jesus to be. Uh, the first one that it mentions is the cosmic vending machine, Jesus, who just you go to whenever you need something. Um, he gives you whatever you want, kind of this transaction of if I do good, Jesus does good for me. Um, the right, it's kind of an oversimplified, that prosperity gospel. Uh, if I do the, the right motions or give enough or sing the right song, whatever, then Jesus will reward me in kind of this cosmic vending machine. Um, that's not the real Jesus. The Bible never makes this promise that Jesus owes us whatever we want in exchange for getting our act together. Um, and so that's a myth. That's not the real Jesus. Second, it talked about the divine, divine cheerleader Jesus, who only exists to support and encourage us, make us feel good on a bad day, uh, hold our hand through rough times, that kind of thing, um, to usher in our best life now. Um, that's not all that there is to Jesus. Uh, Jesus does encourage us. He does uh, walk with us through tough times. Um, but he is not merely that, right? Where we just go and get kind of our elf on a shelf Jesus to, to encourage us when we feel down. Um, and then the last one it talked about was the heavenly firefighter Jesus. This is kind of the, um, in case of emergency, use Jesus. Um, the get out of hell free Jesus, but live however you want until, you know, the afterlife kind of thing. Um, that's not who Jesus is. He's not just a... Uh, in case of emergency, you know, banking on uh, getting us out of hell, but uh, we have no regard for him now. That's not the Jesus that we see in Scripture either. Um, Jesus uh, is not to be relegated to these oversimplified caricatures um, that we just discussed, that many want him to be, and that sometimes we live uh, as if we believe that, right? That, uh, you know, I don't acknowledge Jesus until I need something or things go bad, and then I'll pray or seek him. <clears throat> that's not the Jesus that we see in Scripture. Rather, Jesus is the Christ. Christ is a word that means Messiah. Messiah is a word that means the anointed one. And so this anointed one, as we see in Scripture, is referring to this promised Savior, this Savior King. Uh, in the Old Testament, specifically, we see it as Israel's Savior King that's being promised. And then we see eventually through Scripture that he's not just coming to save the Jews, but for all the world, right, for Jews and Gentiles. And so in Jesus the Christ, he is this promised anointed Savior, not just, uh, or not merely a cosmic vending machine, a heavenly cheerleader or firefighter, uh, but actually the king of kings. He's truly unique. He's actively ruling as king of kings. Um, most kings and kingdoms work from the standpoint of subjects proving themselves worthy, right, to gain the favor of the king. Um, and that's kind of the worldly approach to kings and kingdoms. But that's not how Jesus and this kingdom of grace works. In Christianity, it's centered on what Jesus has already done, 
not what we are to do. As Treat says in chapter 3, most religions are about ascending to God through works. The Christian faith is about God descending to us in grace. Again, this is why we have a gospel or good news of the kingdom. It's good news that Jesus has done what is required of us, but we could never do. That's not just good news, it's great news. I don't know if there's another word for that, but we'll stick with gospel uh, because it is really good news that what is required of us that we need to do in order to be reconciled to a holy God and be in fellowship with him, but we are incapable of doing, Christ has done for us. Um, That is what makes him the king of kings, right? He is doing what no other king can do um, and is unmatched in that. His kingdom is also tied to his person. So we're not to view the kingdom as a set of rules or guidelines uh, and totally remove the person of, of Jesus. It, the kingdom is, is kind of the way of Jesus, right? It is, uh, he is the kingdom personified. Um, so as we try to live the kingdom apart from the king, we're, we would be dismissing this idea of the concept of grace and the good news of the whole situation. Um, it's again, I, kind of, I think I mentioned this last week, this idea of if I can imagine heaven but not the presence of God there, then that's not really what heaven is meant to be. If I just come up with an idea of paradise but I don't have the person of God there, <clears throat> then I'm missing the point of what uh, paradise really is. It's the same way with the kingdom. Uh, as many would say, you know, I, w- I want to try to live biblical principles and, and really just kind of modify behavior but aren't really abiding in the person of Christ, that's not really the kingdom way. The king and the kingdom go together. Um, And so the rest of the chapter kind of details how Jesus brings the kingdom. As we establish that there is a kingdom, he is the king, and he's the king of kings, how does he bring this kingdom? Well, first of all, Jesus is a servant king. He's the servant king. The theme of Jesus' kingdom ministry on earth was service. He said of himself in Matthew 28, 20, and it's recorded in some of the other Gospels as well. He said, the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The hallmark of Jesus' mission to save sinners is humility and sacrifice and service. He didn't sit back on his throne in heaven and pull strings and just watch from afar. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us as one of us, to draw us to himself and save us. His heart towards us, his compassion for the undeserving is evident in how he always made time in his ministry and extended effort to love others, to serve others. Paul charges us to pursue this same sacrificial loving service in our own lives as he describes Jesus' humility and challenges us to to be like that in Philippians 2, 5 through 10, it speaks of Jesus' humility and eventual exaltation, showing us the swing from Jesus' humility, kind of a low point in humbling himself to God, uh, kind of uber exalting him above everything else. Paul writes, starting in verse 5, chapter 2, Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So verse 9 where it says, God has highly exalted him. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, the Greek literally is like uh, huper, which is where we get uber from. Uh, uber exalting of, of Christ. That he takes Jesus from his humbling himself to take on flesh and live among us as man. And then highly uber exalts him above everything else. So that as you see, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the king of kings in his rightful place, receiving his rightful honor. And yet, the pathway to that uh, highly exalted state was sacrifice, suffering, humility. The servant king. Verse 7 mentioned that he emptied himself. This is a picture of Jesus pouring himself out. Paul would use this same language referring to his own life as being poured out twice in his own writings, showing his pursuit of living like Jesus did, that his life was being poured out as a drink offering, this idea of emptying yourself, giving all that you have, surrendering yourself for others in service and sacrifice. In his servant-minded ministry to us, Jesus also showed his divine power through signs and wonders, miracles. They weren't meant to be a, a sideshow, right? To say, ooh, who's this magician Jesus and attract a crowd? But what he's doing when he performs miracles is really uh, giving glimpses of the kingdom. He, he's showing the power of God to make things the way they ought to be. It's restorative. It's redemptive. It's this aspect of the kingdom of saying, look, if, if everything were in the fully realized kingdom, this is how things would be all the time. The miracles of Jesus demonstrate this. Healing the sick, feeding the multitude, turning water into wine, they all point us to the way of the kingdom. A lack of illness or lack of sickness, right? Lavish abundance, not just satisfying the needs of the people who would eat, but there was leftovers, lots of leftovers, showing that not only does he meet the needs, but he is abundant in his blessing of us. Turning water into wine, I mean, celebration, right? The, the party doesn't stop in heaven. And so we see glimpses of what Samwise Gamgee said in The Lord of the Rings. And he says, well, all the sad things come untrue. So when Jesus performs a miracle, he's showing what it would be like when all the sad things become untrue, which is what God is working towards in the new creation. When the kingdom is fully realized, all the sad things will come untrue. Everything will be as it ought to be with no brokenness, sadness, sickness, death. And so that's what the miracles were meant to be, as Jesus served fully man and fully God, but ministered to mankind and started to give glimpses of the kingdom to us. Again, as Treat writes in Seek First, Jesus didn't come to make the world a better place. He came to make the world new by grace. And so Jesus' ministry was one of making things new a little bit at a time to show himself as the divine to point people to the way of Christ, to point people to the kingdom way, on earth as it is in heaven, right? This was his prayer. 
And since Jesus is the kingdom, or as we just established, the way things ought to be personified, we know he is perfect. The fully realized kingdom, and it's the, the, the person of God in Christ anyway, where all failed before him, Jesus succeeded. As I mentioned earlier, Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, etc., they were all tasked with God's reign over God's place, but all failed. Jesus is the final reset. He's the last Adam, as we read in 1 Corinthians. There is no one coming after him because he got the job done. He did what he was supposed to do. He will make things as they ought to be, and he did not fail. We read a few minutes ago that Jesus' humility marked his ministry. And in the passage from Philippians 2 about Jesus humbling himself, it said that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus' servanthood is epitomized in his crucifixion. This ultimate act of selflessness was laying down his life. He is the servant king, and he is the crucified king. Jesus proclaimed the good news of his kingdom and demonstrated the way things ought to be for three years of ministry and then was killed. A seemingly tragic end to a movement that was gaining momentum and a way of life that signaled victory, a better way forward, this way of the kingdom. But it was the way of the cross, too. As I mention often, this was not the culmination that many had hoped for or expected when they heard about the kingdom and the coming Messiah. Hopes and dreams for the kingdom on earth were more in line with political or military or economic might, not sacrifice, surrender, and death. But lest anyone think the cross marked the end of Jesus' reign, rest assured that he was king before the cross, he was king on the cross, and he's still king after the cross. Again, as we read in chapter 3 from Seek First, the cross is the throne from which the king of the world rules with grace. The cross is where so much happened through Jesus for us. In the book, it's referred to as a multifaceted accomplishment. And there's a great little graphic on page 55, uh, if you want to look at that later. And it has all these words that are secured or accomplished on the cross in Christ. And I hope you guys will look at that, not right now, but another time. The main theme of all of that is substitutionary atonement. Two big old words. But really what they mean is the idea that Jesus took our place, our substitute, and he took, us, took our place to make us at one with God. Atonement means to make up for wrongdoing, right? To kind of repay what you have messed up or to, to make things right by doing something. Uh, to make, yes, to make things that are wrong right uh, by doing something to make up for it. But we couldn't accomplish that. We couldn't do it. So when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying the price to make things right for sinners, so that we don't have to, which is great news because we never could make things right. So substitutionary atonement is a beautiful thing, a big phrase, but it means that Christ took our place to make things right for us when we couldn't. This is the amazing truth being described in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And also prophesied way back in Isaiah 53, verse 5, which says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds 
we are healed. The tragic, humble, sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross brings us to God. We did not have this power in ourselves. We could not conjure it or buy it or fake it. The only reason a relationship with God is possible is because Jesus died on the cross. The servant king, serving so selflessly and sacrificially that he laid down his life on the cross, but not in defeat, but victory. And in his death, victory over sin. But he didn't stay dead. He's the servant king and the crucified king, but he's also the resurrected king. This should be fresh on our minds since we're coming off of Easter just a few weeks ago. Still ringing in our ears a little bit, this idea of resurrection. Jesus rendered the accuser powerless against us on the cross, but he defeated the power of sin and death through resurrection. As I mentioned previously, it's the exclamation point on all that Jesus said and did. Validates and vindicating everything that he said would happen and who he said he was makes these claims true when he's raised back to life. If he did not rise from the dead, we are, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, still in our sins, and of uh, all people most to be pitied. If Jesus had stayed dead, then all the fears of loss on the cross would be true. This culmination that we see of Jesus making things the way they ought to be and showing us glimpses of this eternal kingdom and uh, God's fully realized kingdom culminating in his death, if he had stayed dead, would have been this tragic end and made us doubt all that he said and promised before. But he did defeat death and rise from the dead. We don't have the option of buying into everything else but not the resurrection. It kind of reminds me of C.S. Lewis writing about the options that Christ gives us and the claims he made about himself. He's either a liar a lunatic, or he is Lord. He either just made it all up as a con man who didn't believe it but wanted to convince us, or a lunatic who believed it to be true about himself even though it still wasn't true, or he is in fact Lord. And all of it is true, and he believes it, and he's telling us the truth. So not only did the resurrection vindicate Jesus' claims, but it drew us into further participation and identification with him. Galatians 2.20 says we are no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Paul writes this. And Romans 6.4 says we were raised to walk in the newness of life. The abundant, victorious, though humble life we live is only made possible by Jesus' resurrection. This is what powers and makes possible the kingdom in us. If the kingdom is to be manifested through us at all, it has to be by the power of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Life in Christ is life by the spirit and made possible through the resurrection of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is why we confidently seek the kingdom, marked by humility and service, and sacrifice, because we know that Jesus has defeated sin and death. So while we humble ourselves, we also stand in victory with Christ. In him we are no longer slaves to sin, but we can now please God by faith. This is not possible apart from Christ. To try to do things to the glory of God apart from faith doesn't work. But since Christ has died and been resurrected, by faith in that, we receive his righteousness 
we live by faith and we can please and honor God. It's by faith that we seek the kingdom in our lives and honor and glorify our unmatchable king. Only by faith in Christ are we made alive in Christ and can live for Christ. This servant king, this crucified king, this resurrected king who is the king of kings. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for pouring yourself out in such a way that you um, did not consider your equality with uh, the Father and the, and the Spirit a thing to be, to be held onto um, in such a way that it, that it kept you from coming to earth, taking on humanity, taking on flesh. This incarnation, God in flesh, we praise you for that miracle. We praise you for that, uh, that mission towards us, that compassion towards us. That Christianity is not a system of us working our way up towards you because we would never get there, but it is a plan of you coming down to us. Jesus, thank you for your obedience, your selflessness, and your sacrifice. Thank you for showing us that the cross is not a sign of defeat. The cross is a sign of victory, stamped in exclamation by your resurrection. That all that you said about yourself is true, that all you claim to be is true, and that by faith in you, we receive your righteousness. We receive eternal life. We receive sonship. We are children of God by faith because of you. As we've read in our confession, we, we pray to God that, that he would receive us on your merits, Jesus, not on our own. That he would receive us on your righteousness, which is granted to us by faith. We praise you, Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords. I pray again that you would not find us in rebellion to your kingdom, not in rebellion to our king, but in loving, faithful obedience, aligning our lives, surrendering, submitting our lives to your kingdom ways. That as you here and there in the, in the already uh, give us glimpses of the way things ought to be through your kingdom. That you would keep us patient uh, as we persevere towards the not yet of your kingdom when it is fully realized. And I pray, God, that as we appreciate it and enjoy it and walk in it, that we would also share it with others, those who are far from you, those who don't yet know our great king that others might be loved into the family of God as well. We praise you, we love you. We ask these things and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.